Uh, for those of you who are new, uh, just by way of introduction, my name's Chris, uh, one of the pastors here, and we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been looking at the Beatitudes, which is the first section of this sermon. And in these Beatitudes, we see Jesus laying out a vision for what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. He's laying out what the heart attitudes and the actions of those who are disciples of Jesus, what it looks like. We're we're defining what it means to be a disciple through the word of God. And so we've been spending the past couple weeks looking at the Beatitudes, and we're going to come to the final Beatitude this morning. And so here's how we're going to get into this last section of Matthew 5, 1 through 12. How do you think about Christian persecution, especially Christian persecution in the United States? See, on the one hand, we can compare whatever persecution we face in this country, and it pales in many ways to what our brothers and sisters in Christ face in countries like Pakistan or Nigeria or Egypt or Syria or Sudan or India, where opposition there is kind of blunt force trauma. They face death, imprisonment, kidnapping, torture, having property destroyed. When, when I taught in Maryland, I taught at a, a private Christian school, and 40% of the high school were international students. And I had this student from Nigeria named Paul. And one time he and I were, were talking during lunch and he told me this incredible story of a time his village was attacked by Muslim extremists. And he and his family and some other Christians were literally surrounded by a group of folks that meant to do them harm. And all of a sudden, this man walks into the crowd, grabs them by, kind of grabs these, these Christians and they just walks. And this, this crowd, this frenzy crowd, just let him go. And, and he was telling me this, and he goes, here's, here's Mr. Hemelman, here's the thing that was odd. Nobody ever saw that man ever again. Nobody had any idea who he was, never seen him before, never saw him again. He goes, I think that was an angel. I'm like, you're probably right. But to face that kind of persecution where your life is on the line, here in America, we, we, we don't understand that. And so we can think of persecution in the United States, hey, we're not, it's not that. And so what are we talking about? They're, 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 we aren't persecuted. But this isn't the only type of persecution, though. Open Doors, an organization in the UK that supports persecuted Christians around the world, makes this important point. Persecutions of Christians is more than just physical violence. It is a complex, multifaceted phenomenon that involves many aspects, such as various forms of cultural marginalization, government discrimination, hindrances on conversion, interferences on participation in public affairs, and restrictions on church life. One doesn't have to be violently oppressed to face persecution. So rather than blunt force trauma, it's more of a pressure, a squeeze on the life of the church and Christians. And when we think about this, even in the United States, it pales in comparison to countries like North Korea or Somalia or Afghanistan or Iran or Saudi Arabia, where pressure on the church there can be extreme, even leading to death, not necessarily leading to death, but we consider the pressure we face in this country and it pales in comparison. We say, we don't have it that bad. Yet, though these things are true, we cannot deny that more and more Christians in this country are facing a level of pressure and restriction and persecution. It is present, though it pales in comparison, it is present and increasingly so. More and more, we hear stories of schools prohibiting religious expression. 
towns being sued to take down nativity displays, small business owners being sued out of existence for not violating their conscience. Or how about this story, a recent case, Kim Burrell. Miss Burrell is a gospel singer and pastor in Houston. And one of her songs was on the soundtrack for the Academy Award-nominated movie, Hidden Figures. Maybe you saw this movie. As part of the promotion for the movie, Miss Burrell was scheduled to perform on a number of morning shows and talk shows and award shows. But then video surfaced of her preaching in her church, speaking out against homosexuality. And immediately, all those performances were dropped. She lost a radio show. She lost an award. The, the movie and the producers and the actors all distanced herself from her, and she was ostracized for taking a stand for biblical ethics. What do you do with that, living in this country? What do you do with the stories of the persecution that seem to be more and more prevalent? See, as our societies become more pluralistic in religion and values, Christianity has lost its place at the center of culture. It's now one belief among many. And a lot of, in a lot of instances where we feel sort of the pressure and persecution, it's really just Christianity losing its status, where it's no longer given a privileged place and cultural influence. People don't share common Christian assumptions about truth and morality anymore. Culture and media don't reflect those assumptions to the same degree. So what we're experiencing is the assumptions between non-Christians and Christians for a lot of t- long time in this country weren't too far off. We're now more and more the gap is widening. And as the gap has widened, so has the pressure on Christians been tightened. There are those who want to forcibly remove Christianity's remaining influence where it just stubbornly won't go away. And the trend in our culture is now is shaming the church into either changing its core teachings or causing it to retreat back into the shadows of quiet irrelevancy. Or if that doesn't work, we're going to marginalize the church so much that it doesn't even have a seat at the table of ideas. So we're incredibly blessed with religious freedom in this country. Let's not forget that. But we cannot deny what is happening around us culturally. And I don't, I'm not a prophet. I don't pretend to know where we're headed if things are going to get much worse than they already are. But we can't be in denial that something is happening. Because here's the truth, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. Whether you're a Christian in Pakistan or North Korea or in the United States, following Jesus will get you opposed. Following Jesus will cause you to experience some level of persecution. But here's the good news for us. No matter what degree of persecution that is, God's word sets our expectation and shapes our response. So we're going to look at the final beatitude this morning, which is verses 10 through 12. Here's the main point. For disciples of Jesus, persecution is guaranteed. So rejoice and be faithful. So Jesus sets a clear expectations for his disciples. To be a disciple means you will suffer some level of persecution. Persecution guaranteed. Jesus says when, not if, when you suffer persecution. But let's ask this question, why? Why will we face persecution? What is it about following Jesus that makes this guaranteed? Well, let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 10, and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
So as we've been looking at the past several weeks, following Christ means that we are following a path of righteousness and goodness and justice and peace. And, and those, that righteousness and that goodness and that justice pushes back against this world. It pushes back against the values and the ethics of this world and its systems. We are called to hunger and thirst after righteousness, not just in outward righteousness, but inward righteousness. Following Jesus transforms you and it puts you on a path that says, hey, the way I was walking in sin and rebellion is no, way, no longer the way I'm walking. And that is going to put you at odds with this world. But notice something very important in these two statements. Jesus equates righteousness on account of him. The righteousness that he's talking about is on account of Jesus. It's not self-righteousness. It isn't political righteousness. It isn't racial righteousness. It isn't middle-class righteousness. It isn't nationalistic righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's defined by Jesus. It's defined by his kingdom. It's the righteousness that Jesus declares. This is the righteousness that marks my people. And what are those markers? What is the righteousness we're called to live out? The Beatitudes, what he has just been talking about. And so he, he walks through what it looks like to follow him and the marks of the disciples. And it leads to, hey, you live this way, guess what? Persecution's coming. That's what you sign up for. All these blessings, hey, guess what's at the end of that? Persecution. But this clarifies things for us. This is an important thing. Believers in Jesus. Jesus isn't saying you're going to get persecuted because you're a jerk in your political beliefs. He isn't saying that when you judge someone self-righteously and they push back against that, that that's what you're going to get persecuted for. We cannot confuse when people push back against us for being a jerk with being persecuted for righteousness on Jesus' account. So let's be clear on what Jesus is talking about. But let's go back to the question, why? Why will living out and teaching the Beatitudes cause persecution? Well, let's consider these. Living out and teaching blessed are the poor in spirit directly confronts the belief that it is the strong and the powerful and the rich that are the blessed ones. It confronts the underlying belief that through my strength and my control and my performance, I can build stability. Proclaiming we're utterly broken, rebellious sinners who bring nothing to the table opposes the presumption that I'm accepted by my performance, that I'm enough, that I'm okay and you're okay, and I'm a good person, and if the good outweighs the bad, I'll be all right. Any message that doesn't end with me being enough gets opposed. Here's what it also does. If I'm not saved by my works, if I'm not saved by the right self-help strategy, then guess what? The powers that be can't control me. They can't control me because they can't say, hey, you have to jump through this hoop to be right with society. And they hate that. They hate that believers who are poor in spirit cannot be controlled. Living out and proclaiming blessed are the meek also confronts the value and power of control. Our culture, our world values kind of that brash, bravado, I got this mentality. Like, I'm competent, I'm confident, and I, I can do this. Never admit faults. Never admit that I'm weak. 
Or if I do, I'm going to blame my problems on something psychological or environmental or physical. There's always some other thing that's the cause of my problems. Meekness says, no, own it, admit it. You're a broken sinner. You need redemption. You can't fix what's broken in you and in the world. Meekness calls us to admit we're helpless and sinful and not make excuses. Meekness confronts the cultural value of never challenging a person's self-esteem or character or identity. And you teach that, you live that out, you will experience opposition. Living out and proclaiming blessed are those who mourn confronts our fantasy-filled, pleasure-driven world. It calls people to face sin and brokenness, not run from it, not bury it, not entertain yourself away from it. It says, face it, weep over it, feel it, and, and don't get sinfully angry about it and try to wrest control for yourself. It's, no, Lord, I can't control this, so all I can do is bring my pain and my brokenness to you. That confronts our society's pride and pleasure-filled ethic. Living out and proclaiming blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and blessed are the pure in heart confronts man-made notions of goodness, righteousness, and purity. It says, I don't define what's good and evil. I don't decide for myself what I do with my money and my power and my sexuality and my relationships and my job. God defines those things. And so for, for Jesus to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's getting at, hey, what do you desire? How are you defining what is good and what is true and what is beautiful? And forces us to say, hey, we're not the definer of reality. Living out and proclaiming blessed are the merciful and blessed are the peacemakers confronts the tribalism in our society. It pushes back against the hysterics and the anger and the vitriol and the self-righteous posturing. It says you don't gain an identity by, by creating this us versus them mentality. Having to show mercy to those who pose us what? Our society says put them in their place and keep them there because that feels good. I've got control and power over my enemies. Blessed are the merciful and blessed are the peacemakers. Pushes back against this notion. It also says that I need to be at peace with God. I have broken a relationship with God. I need mercy. I need God to come and make peace with me. And so if you start walking through these beatitudes, if you start living these things out, you're going to rub up against our culture and our society because ultimately living these outs, ultimately proclaiming the beatitudes declares that our highest allegiance isn't self, it isn't political party, it isn't racial identity, it isn't national identity, it isn't my education, it isn't my job. My highest allegiance is to Jesus and when my highest allegiance is to Jesus, those who want me to fit into their agenda, those who want me to follow their ethics and their philosophy are not going to like it when I say, no, Jesus is my king. Jesus defines for me what is true and what is good. Following Christ will rub up against and oppose the agendas and the desires and the identities and the comfort and the power and the control of others. Consider whom Jesus is saying will persecute his disciples. In Matthew 5, 11 through 12, he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who is the others and who is the they that Jesus is talking about? Well, in direct context, Jesus is talking largely about Jewish religious political leaders and others who would not follow him. Who were those that persecuted the prophets in the Old Testament? It was evil religious and political leaders and the people within Israel. And why? Because the prophets called them on their sin. Their message and their loyalty to God exposed darkness in these leaders and in these people. And as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the lights because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The light of God shining through the prophets exposed the darkness that was present in Israel and in the world, and they hated them for it. They hated having their selfishness and their pride and their idolatry exposed. They hated having their power and their control and their status and their comfort exposed. They hated that they could not control the prophets. They hated they couldn't get them to follow their agenda They hate that they couldn't get the the prophets to speak well of them and speak their message. And it was the same for the disciples and the apostles. John the Baptist confronts Herod for being a womanizing, uh, egotistical maniac, and it costs him his head. Jesus comes up against the Pharisees and says, hey, your righteousness, all that outward action, not good enough, you're not in the kingdom. And so they crucify him. Peter, James, and Stephen tell the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, hey, you don't follow Moses. You think you follow Moses, but you don't because if you did, you would believe in Christ. And so they came after them. Paul steps forward and says to the Athenians in, in Ephesus and says, hey, your idols are nothing. They're empty. There's no true God behind them. And he causes riots because their pocketbook was challenged. And the same is true for us today. When the light of God, as seen in the Beatitudes, shines through us, and as we live out our allegiance to Christ, darkness in people will be exposed. Look, Christians, we hate it when darkness in our heart gets exposed, right? And we belong to God. We have the Holy Spirit, and yet we hate it. We push back against it. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, ultimately we submit to that. But imagine if we hate it, How much more so people who don't have the Holy Spirit are they going to hate having that darkness exposed? When the light of Christ shines through us and how we live and in the message we proclaim, people will hate having their selfishness and pride and idolatry exposed. Excuse me. They will hate having their power and control and status and comfort exposed. They will hate that they cannot control us. They will hate that they can't get us to follow their agenda, meet their desires, give them the status they crave. Oh, when you don't get in line with someone's agenda, when your allegiance is higher, people don't like that and they will oppose you. And hear me on this church, this opposition is going to come no matter who is in power in this government. Following Jesus will rub up against Democrat, 
Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, alt-right, alt-left, I don't care how you want to describe it. If you follow Jesus, if your highest allegiance is to Jesus, everyone will come after you at some point. Because those aren't the kingdom of God. Those aren't following Christ as their highest allegiance. And so we need to recognize this is about loyalty to Christ first and foremost. And so we can expect that no matter what happens. Because the message we proclaim is going to push back. So what do we do? Kind of back to my original question. What do we do with this persecution in our country? What do we do when we know that persecution for being a Christian is guaranteed? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we could minimize the issue. We could say, hey, we aren't as bad as the Middle East or North Korea or parts of Africa. So stop whining. Stop whining. Don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. But minimizing is unhelpful because it misses something important. So writing in Christianity Today about persecution in the United States, K.A. Ellis quotes a Middle Eastern underground house church leader who says this to Americans about the persecution in this country. Persecution is easier to understand when it's physical. Torture, death, imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. I think this is incredibly insightful. And we should heed our brother in Christ here. Persecution in this country is more like a cancer, meaning it eats us from the inside out, and sometimes we're not even aware of it. And here's what happens when we minimize. We say, you know, the effects of persecution aren't that bad. Things really aren't that bad. We don't need to worry about that in this country. We have plenty of freedom. And so we minimize never thinking and never sort of reflecting on the effects that it is having on us. So we end up slowly compromising. We start saying things aren't that bad, so we don't need to be that radical. Jesus really didn't mean when. It's more of an if. And we start excusing away the things that we experience. And so we start backing away from taking a stand and being following Christ fully. Man, the church, we, we kind of deserve some of the pushback because we've been jerks in the past. Or let's stop being so pushy about our faith because it just causes unnecessary division. We live in a pluralistic society now, so let's just be open to other ideas and faiths. This is what happens when we start minimizing. In the same article, Ellis quotes a Syrian Christian who cautions this. It wasn't only ISIS who laid waste to the church. Our cultural compromises with the governments and our divisions against each other brewed for a long time. We are Damascus, the seat of Christianity. What happened to us can happen to you. Be careful. Minimizing has a way of slowly eroding the edge of our faith, leading to compromise. And that's exactly the goal of persecution. Persecution's end is to get you to shut up, to get you to stop sharing Jesus, to retreat back into the corner and say, this faith thing, I'm just going to kind of compartmentalize it into my own home. And so if, if in our culture can get us to minimize things and deceive us into thinking things aren't that bad, so we take the edge off our faith, well, then that's the point. And the opposition wins. On the other extreme of minimizing is fear. 
and we express fear through hysterics. America's going down the tube. We've lost her. We're in trouble. And so there's this sort of angst and anger about all that is going around us. And so we start to treat anyone who's not a Christian like an enemy. Wait, you're not a Christian? Well, you're part of the problem. You want to take away my rights. And so I'm going to start treating you in a hostile way. Or this, politicians. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm going hard on politics today because this is, I think this is an important piece of this. Politicians can feed our fear and get us to follow their agenda because they say, hey, if you don't vote for me, guess what's going to happen? I, yeah, ignore all of that other junk going on. Ignore all of the, the flaws in my character and all the lies that I've said. But if you don't vote for me, religious persecution's coming your way. And if we're living in fear, we start to compromise. We start to, to believe that. We start to fear, like, hey, if I don't, I'm in trouble. And so fear causes us to compromise. Fear causes us to miss that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus told his disciples, fear not for I have overcome the world. We we don't need to be manipulated by our fear of persecution because Jesus has overcome the world. And if we belong to him, so will we. The kingdom of God is present. That's our hope. Not politicians, not policy. And so we do not need to be manipulated by fear. Fear also causes us to compromise in this way. Well, I don't want to be called a hateful bigot. I, I don't want to be shamed. I, I don't want anyone to think that, that I'm a judgmental jerk. So I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut. I, I won't be as open with my faith. I won't share the gospel with people. I won't confront people in their sin. Because if I do, that could, could go badly for me. And so the shame, the fear, the, the pressure of society saying, hey, you're, you're a self-righteous jerk, causes us to shrink back. And so fear and minimizing both lead to compromise. So what do we do then? Here's what Jesus tells his disciples. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. Persecution comes. Church, rejoice. Be glad. I hope that hits you in a, huh? If, if, if it doesn't, in some ways, you're probably just glossing over the force of that. Be glad that I'm persecuted. Be glad that people are pressuring me to keep my mouth shut. Be glad that they may want to take my life. What Jesus is saying here is radical, especially for his disciples and the pressure they are going to face. How can we rejoice and be glad when we face opposition and persecution? Well, because yours is the kingdom of heaven and great is your reward in heaven. Persecution, opposition want to shame you. They want to mark you with that big scarlet letter of hateful, bigot, self-righteous, judgmental, oppressive. They want to mark you as being on the wrong side of history. So shut up and sit in the corner. But Jesus says persecution doesn't mark you as shameful, but as blessed. He's flipping the script on what persecution does. He's saying, don't let persecution shame you. Let it be a blessing to you. When you feel that, know you're blessed. Don't listen to those voices. Don't listen to the pressure. Know that you are blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven and great is your reward in heaven. 
You belong to God. Here's the essence of what Jesus is saying. He's trying to reorient their identity. He's saying the world and its persecution wants to mark you with a certain identity, but you rejoice because you know what your identity really is. You belong to me. You belong to God. You are my disciple. For him to say, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. Who were the prophets? The prophets were the chosen spokesmen. They were the anointed and empowered men of God. God gave them a message and sent them to the people to proclaim his message. They were part of God's entourage. To be a prophet said, hey, I belong to God. I'm God's man. And Jesus is equating the disciples, both here and today. Hey, you're part of my entourage. You belong to me. That is your identity. Don't forget that. And you feel that identity. That identity is exposed and revealed when you experience opposition. You rejoice because it says, oh, yes, I belong to God. I don't belong to this sort of shameful, bigoted, uh, self-righteous, judgmental mark that the world wants to put on me. No, I belong to Jesus. And that should cause us to rejoice. We should celebrate. We should say, praise God in the midst of opposition and persecution, because this is what it means. It means that me, a sinful, rebellious, unmerciful, God-hating, people-hating sinner has been rescued. It means that God didn't have to love me, but yet he came and got me. He showed mercy and love and forgiveness to me. Nothing I deserve, nothing about my works, nothing that I've done. But he came and he saved me. And he saved you if you are in Jesus Christ. And when we face that persecution, we're sort of reminded, hey, I could be on the other side of this, yet for the grace of God, yet for the mercy of God. And so we rejoice that God has shown us love and shown us forgiveness and that God would say of you, God would say of me, he's mine, she's mine, my child, my daughter, my son, part of my entourage. Like if that doesn't grip you, if that that doesn't hold you and say how amazing God's grace that he would say, I belong to him because I know the junk in my heart. I know where I've been. And yet he loved me enough to save me and call me his own. That's what persecution exposes. That's that's what persecution should unravel in us. It should make us aware of our identity. Make us aware of who we belong to. Here's also why we rejoice. Because it means the kingdom of God is present. It means that poverty of spirit and mercy and peace, and purity, and righteousness, and justice, and truth are the thing that went out in the end. That has come. That is what defines reality. That is the end of the story, not division, and evil, and wickedness, and oppression. All the things that will oppose us in, when, when we stand for the name of Jesus, we rejoice because we know it has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. And so we rejoice because of what is true. And here's also what is great about rejoicing. You can't control a joyful person. Like a person who has found the deepest pleasure outside of what you can give them is uncontrollable. If you have nothing to offer me, you cannot control me. 
And this is the beauty of joy and rejoicing. It means that the world and its persecution cannot control us. If I'm rejoicing in God, then the shame you try to put on me, the shame that the world tries to, to, to mark us with and shove us in the corner has no effect. I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. I'm joyful. I've experienced the grace of God. How are you going to do anything to me? And so we are not controlled by fear. We don't need to minimize when we are joyful. And the other thing is, is that if I am joyful, I'm not going to be cynical and I'm not going to retreat. I'm going to testify to the kingdom and it will be contagious. It, It will show that, hey, there's something to this kingdom that's worth knowing about. It will show this world that, hey, there's a deeper joy, there's a deeper satisfaction than anything you can give me. And you're trying to pressure me to keep my mouth shut, but I'm not going to. And people are going to go, why? Why in the midst of all that shaming, all that pressure, all the reasons to keep their mouth shut, they're not doing so? Why do they have so much joy? So our rejoicing is going to point to a greater kingdom and a greater king. So church, as I said, I don't know where our culture is headed. I don't know how bad things are going to get. Yes, right now, we're not facing the same thing that our brothers and sisters in Christ are in other parts of the world. And we should pray for them. We should care about their struggles. We should feel this sense of connection to them because we are their brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of the same body of Christ. But no matter what direction our culture takes, no matter who's in political office, no matter who has the power, no matter what the policies are, no matter how much religious freedom we keep or regain or lose, know that to follow Jesus means we will experience opposition one way or another. And when that happens, let us rejoice in the fact that we belong to God, that we have been saved, that we have been rescued. Let us rejoice that our reward in heaven is great. Let us rejoice that the kingdom of God is ours. And let that joy be contagious. Let that joy take us out into this world and proclaim the gospel with love and care and compassion in our hearts so that others may come to know Christ and be part of the kingdom and experience that joy as well. That's our response to persecution, rejoicing and being faithful. Amen.